Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 21. Book of Acts, chapter 21. Now, as you are turning there, just want to make a clarification. So, if if you've been here the last few weeks, we've been sort of out of order in Acts. Have you noticed this? We've jumped forward, we've jumped back, we're jumping forward again. No, we're not going to 21 for today's text. We're not jumping that far ahead, okay? But uh, just for various reasons, uh, that has had to happen, but we're going to try to sort of readjust. So, just to kind of get us all on the same page, Luke wrote his gospel and Acts as part one and part two of his story of Jesus and the birth of the early church. Acts begins after the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, spends 40 days with the apostles, training them, teaching them about the kingdom and about the Spirit. He ascends into heaven. Ten days later, on the Jewish feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem, the Spirit is poured out, and 3,000 Jews from various nations are radically converted and baptized and join this brand new church right there in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church begins to really be in competition with the apostate Israel of the day, and the leaders of apostate Israel do not like the renewed Israel of the church, and there's a battle going back and forth, and they begin to persecute, the, that is, apostate Israel begins to persecute the followers of the Messiah, Jesus. This leads eventually to uh, the martyrdom of Stephen. Now, you remember Stephen, right? We spent a lot of time on Stephen. He was one of the seven, remember, picked out? the Greek-speaking Christians to take care of the neglected Greek-speaking Hellenized widows. Now, here's an important point for today and for some of the last few weeks. Stephen's not the only one of the seven. The second man listed in that list of seven servants of the early church was a man named Philip. Now, Philip is the one that a few weeks ago we saw in Acts 8 after the persecution under Saul, who becomes known as Paul the Apostle, When that persecution starts, the Christians are scattered out of Jerusalem. They're preaching the gospel everywhere. Luke gives us one story of Philip going to Samaria, north of Jerusalem, and he preaches. And what happens, shockingly, there's a revival that breaks out, and there's a major conversion that that happens there. And if I'm going to pull up a map here and, and show you a little bit. So after Philip is done in Samaria, what Philip is going to do is Philip is going to travel, as you can see on this map, if you can tell where we are, Dead Sea on the right, Sea of Galilee is just off the top right corner where Jesus, you know, walked on water up at the top corner. Mediterranean Sea here on your left. Egypt is the road down this way off the bottom left-hand side of the screen. Well, uh, Philip has been up there in Samaria, and he's going to head down past Jerusalem through this road going from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is about 40-some miles. He ends up here in Gaza, the bottom left-hand corner of the screen, where he's going to meet the main part of our story today, the Ethiopian eunuch. We'll talk more about him in a moment. After that encounter, the Spirit... Uh, perhaps supernaturally, whisks off Philip, and Philip appears at Azotus, right, right here, uh, also known as Ashdod, and then he heads up the coast towards Caesarea at the top corner of the screen. I'm just giving you a little orientation. So, the last time we see Philip in Acts, uh, until this chapter, 21, he's in Caesarea. That's the last we know. He gets to Caesarea, he's preaching the gospel, and he leaves the radar screen for all of Acts, all the way till chapter 21, and we get this little future glimpse of Philip, perhaps 20 years later. You know, this is a way, quite a while later. And here's what's special about this, because Luke, the author, is with Paul in this moment. And look what we see. This is Acts 21, verse 8. The we sections of Acts would include Luke as part of the group. So, Acts 21, verse 8, on the next day, we, Paul, Luke, and others, departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. 
He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Okay, we're not going to go further. That's for a later day. But here's what's significant. Did Luke get to spend a lot of days in the house of Philip? You ever wonder where Luke got his information? He spent weeks in Philip's living room. He spent weeks in Philip's home. He knew Philip and his daughters. So Luke got the stories we are going to be going over today. Luke got firsthand, no doubt, from Philip during that time he spent at his house a few decades after these events happened. So that's the introduction, kind of setting us all in place. Now let's turn to our story for today. This is Acts chapter 8, the last section of that chapter. Now, instead of reading the whole passage at the front of the message, I'm going to walk through it in pieces, and let's just remind ourselves of what had just happened. In Samaria, uh, Philip had preached, done miracles greater than Simon the magician, and the crowds begin to pay attention to Philip. Many are converted, and they are baptized. They receive the Spirit when the apostles Peter and John lay their hands on them. Let me ask you, is Philip pretty popular at this moment in Samaria? Yes. Yeah, wasn't it not a trick question? He, he is. And no doubt at this point, his name is becoming quite well known in a similar way to how Simon the magician's name, in a bad sense, but he was also well known. Is Philip in the middle of a thriving ministry? Yes, again. He has a whole bunch of brand new, uh, as we call them, you know, baby Christians, brand new believers who need to be discipled. They need to be built up in their faith, and there are no doubt many others who will be reached. Uh, just as a little side comment here, it is so often true, is it not, that when a non-Christian who's sort of been a non-believer becomes a believer, so often their mission field is just right at their fingertips because guess who it is? It's their family, their friends, their roommates, their coworkers, all these people who knew them as an atheist or as a, maybe another religion or an agnostic. Suddenly, they're saying, what happened to you? You're, you're different. And you, sometimes the most effective evangelism will happen in those areas. And we can imagine that was starting to happen in Samaria, that these new Christians were reaching out to their fellow Samaritans and beginning to evangelize them. Now, if I'm Philip in this moment, I want the Lord to say, Philip, you have found your calling. Camp out right here and just go for it for the next 40 years. But that's not what happens. Look, look with us here at what, what occurs. Verse 26 of Acts 8. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now, that always makes me laugh, okay, because Luke is going out of his way to tell us there's not much to see in Gaza, and the road to Gaza is a desert road. There's really nothing amazing or attractive about going to the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's, Gaza was the, you know, it used to be a Philistine city. You may remember in the Old Testament, the Philistines almost always have control of Gaza, and there's all these battles around there. But it's the last really watering hole on the way down towards Egypt. And so, it, it was just a, it was a tr highly traveled area. It was an in-between place. It wasn't a place you wanted to stay necessarily, but it was a place you'd want to travel to get where you needed to go. And so the Holy Spirit, well, in this moment, an angel somehow appears to Philip and says, hey, Philip, I'm going to fill in some extra words that are not in the text, but the, the idea is, Philip, I know you're having a great time here ministering in Samaria. I know you are quite popular right now. The entire area seems to love you and your ministry, and you've been very successful. It's time to go to the desert where there's no one around. Are you ready? And Philip's probably thinking, oh my, but he shows immediate obedience. He rose and went. 
So let me just say a word of application to all of our lives here. This is often, not always, but this is commonly what will happen in people's lives as believers. Sometimes what will happen is the Lord will arrange the circumstances of your life so that you're heading in a direction you did not necessarily plan or intend, or let's be honest, even want to go. If, if you were to plan your life out, you would never say, I want to be on the desert road heading to Gaza, 40-some-odd miles long with no one around. That's, no one's planning for that. But very often in our life, there are unseen detours that, that show up in God's providence and in His sovereignty that redirect our plans. And I will tell you, because I know from personal experience, sometimes the hardest thing to do is to trust in the Lord's sovereign, gracious, wise guidance of our life when there is a complete turn in the road that we did not anticipate and we did not desire. And we can learn a whole lot from Philip right here, because Philip says, probably, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining, Philip says, I don't know why you want me to leave Samaria and this massive ministry that just started and head to the desert, but Lord, that's where you want me to go, that's where I'm going to go. So, let us just remember, in those, I mean, I know we're past Christmas now, okay, we're past Christmas, but I can just imagine Joseph and Mary did not want to be in Bethlehem on that particular day. And yet, did the Lord have a plan in that detour? Yes, the Lord always has a gracious plan in the midst of the confusion and the sometimes disoriented feeling that comes when our plans get changed right in front of us, and we should be willing to follow Him where He leads. Verse 27, and He rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. Now, let me just take a moment here to talk about this. What you may know, you may not know, Ethiopia at this time was not what you think of, of modern-day Ethiopia. It included that territory, but it was significantly larger. In the Old Testament, it was called Cush, and often, this, essentially think, following the Nile south of Egypt, all that area was considered Ethiopia at this time in history. Ethiopia was basically southern Africa. It was a massive area. And after researching this, I just found this interesting. The king in this, in this time period would do practically nothing. So, that the king was considered the son of the sun god, S-U-N, like the sun, and he, would, he, he, was, he considered common labor, you know, b- beneath him, and so he didn't do much. So, either his mother, it's hard to know for sure, either his mother or his wife was the queen, Candace, and Candace wasn't her proper name, that was her title, like Pharaoh, you know, like Caesar. There's a lot of Caesars, a lot of Pharaohs, there were a lot of Candaces. And so, uh, she, she uh, was the one actually doing the day-to-day work of the kingdom, and she had this man working for her who's described in several ways. First of all, obviously, he's an Ethiopian. He's a eunuch, a court official of Candace, and he's in charge of all her treasure. So, I'm going to begin to paint, try to paint a picture with this information of who this man was. Uh, This man, this African man, was no doubt extremely wealthy. Two quick reasons for that. Number one, well, he's the treasurer of a massive kingdom, so I would assume money is nearby. But number two, we're going to hear in a moment that he's reading his own personal copy of Isaiah on a scroll. Now, you may think, yeah, I just, I pull my phone up, I pull my little Bible app up, and I'm reading the Bible. Everybody reads the Bible. You know, you can read the Bible whenever you want. You can be standing in line at the grocery store reading your Bible. 
Well, not in this time period. You understand, virtually no one had a personal copy of Isaiah. Synagogues would own the scrolls, and you would go to the synagogue and have a community Bible, right, that you would all hear read publicly. But nobody is driving around on their chariot carrying their own copy of the, of the books of the Bible. This would be an extraordinarily expensive thing. This scroll would have been many feet long, and this would have been extremely expensive. The, the material it would have been made on, and for someone to actually copy it carefully, this man was clearly extremely wealthy. But let me say more about him. This is everybody's favorite thing to talk about. He was also a eunuch. Don't worry, I'm not going to make you too uncomfortable, but I got to say a few things, okay? This is important because as you read this story, okay, more than you ever wanted to know about this word. Are you ready? In the New Testament, there's only one verse that mentions the word eunuch outside of this passage. It's in Matthew 19. Jesus talks about the gift of singleness and other things in Matthew 19, 12. He uses the word three times in one verse. Jesus does. Outside of Matthew 19, 12, the word eunuch appears nowhere in the New Testament except in this story. Interesting. It's not just used once. It's used one, two, three, four, five times to describe this man. He could have been described the treasurer five times. You could have called him the Ethiopian five times, but Luke chooses not to. After giving us his title and all his descriptions, he calls him the, Ethiop he calls him the eunuch five different times, which means Luke is highlighting that this is a significant part of the story, which I plan to come back to in a moment, but I'll talk a little bit more about what we think we know about this man. He's traveling on chariot, probably pulled by oxen, something like that. He would have had many servants, some kind of entourage with him. Here's where things begin to become more curious about this individual. He's from Ethiopia. This means he traveled almost at minimum, 1,200 miles to get to Jerusalem. There are even liberal, non-Christian scholars who think this story was probably made up. Now, listen, I always disagree with liberal scholars, but they will, they, some people have said, they say, listen, this is unrealistic. What man would go out of his way to travel 1,200 miles on a chariot just to go to Jerusalem to worship? This feels fictional to me, and that's what they say, and that's why I don't read a lot of liberal scholarship because my blood begins to boil. But let me just say, in response to that, do you think Luke doesn't know that 1,200 miles is a long way? Of course he knows that. That's the whole point of the story is this man is on some kind of desperate search or desperate quest, I think. What else do we learn from him, about him? Into verse 27, he had come to Jerusalem to do what? To worship, and he was returning seated on his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, some people will say this whole thing, okay, why, why was he a eunuch? What, why is that being emphasized? Well, one thing about that, to state the obvious, back when, in the old days when you had a king and a queen and you had a royal harem, you know, the king would often have many wives in a harem. That was a mark of a king. Remember, kings would marry women from other nations so that they could make peace treaties, which God forbids in the Old Testament, but people still did, including Solomon. He did that a few times few hundred times, remember. So, that was not good. But what happens is, in order to trust the men to work around the queen and to trust that they will not mistreat the queen in any way or the, the king's harem, they would be asked to become eunuchs, which means physically castrated. They, that was what would happen for them to be able to take this job. And you say, why would anyone ever do such a crazy thing as that for this? And, and this much, I think, is safe to say. Whoever would do this must have, to use modern language, elevated career far beyond any kind of family. 
So they must have said, listen, I, I know I could possibly get married, maybe even have children, but I, I, would, I would much rather put my career at the top, and I want to make that the be-all, end-all. Now, let me just say as a footnote, God has called uh, a lot of Christians, or not a lot, I would say proportionally a smaller number of Christians to the gift of singleness. And I am in no way denigrating that right now. Please understand. So there are, there are plenty of Christians throughout church history uh, who have been called to the gift of singleness. They will be working a job full-time. They will not be married. They will not have children. And there's nothing wrong with that. The Apostle Paul himself was one of those people. John Stott, I've been reading his commentary on Acts. He was a lifelong celibate man as well. So th- that is completely legitimate. I'm not addressing that issue. But here he is saying, career and money was his priority. Was he rich? Yes. Did he have a great job as far as it goes in the ancient world? Yes. This was a way for him to get status. This was a way for him to get money. This was a way for him to get a great career as far as it went, but he had to sacrifice the potential of marriage and family in order to get there. Now, in today's era, is it still possible that people will worship? I'm not just talking about other situations. I mean worship career at high cost to the family. Have you seen this? To where if you want to have certain jobs and really be at the top levels of certain positions, you basically, even if you're married and even if you have children, you basically cannot see them because you're going to be so consumed with your job. And we need wisdom here to say, is my job something I am using for God's glory and for the good of others, or is my job becoming an idol at the center of my life that is giving me my identity, that's giving me my status, that's, I'm all about the money, I'm all about where it's taking me, or is it a servant of God and the other relationships in your life? Just to be very pointed here, if you are married with children, you need to think through this both as men and as women, as God has made those two genders, I mentioned genders at the beginning of the conversation, as God has made those two genders unique with a particular priority for, for mothers in the care and nurture of children in Titus 2 and in other passages, 1 Timothy 5, is the career taking first place in, in the area of child rearing and in the area of the family and also for the husband? It is possible for career to become too time consuming and too much in the way of family and, and those kinds of things. So we need to ask hard questions about our own priorities and our own use of our time and make sure, again, that our jobs are servants of God's calling on our life and don't become our be-all and end-all in our life. So this man here had apparently traded just about everything for this position, and it had given him wealth, it had given him status. One commentator, you know, made an educated guess, said, remember Luke is writing these two volumes to a man named Theophilus, remember that? We don't know much about him, but he sounds like a high-ranking official because he's called most excellent, which was a high-level position, normally speaking. Perhaps Luke is showing that not only do people who are less, uh, in terms of how society ranks people, the, the, the lower income, the more, the more um, disadvantaged come to know the Lord, but also some of the higher ranking people also come to know the Lord. And he's showing you that everybody from every background uh, can come to know Christ through the gospel message. But here's something I want to especially suggest to you from this passage. I think that we are seeing some kind of real spiritual hunger and thirst in this man that doesn't seem like it's being satisfied. So let me just, not to repeat myself, I'm going to put these pieces together as we move forward. So number one, this man was wealthy. He had traded much for his career. He had a high position. He was a a high level 
He was the, uh, as it says here, the court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Number four, he was willing, despite all his money and all his position, he was willing. In fact, it sounded like you could not stop this man from making a how many mile? 1,200-mile journey to Jerusalem to worship. I think that is crucial to understand what's going on in this man's heart. I just have to assume that the money was not satisfying him at the deepest part of his soul. The career, which was enviable in many senses, was not satisfying his hunger. So, I just want to say this. If you are a human being in this world, you are made in God's image. Even if you don't believe in God, I'm just here to tell you, God loves you. He made you in His image, and there is something inside of you which is a spiritual hunger and thirst that we are so often trying to satisfy through distraction and entertainment and career and relationships and all these different things. And yet, at the bottom, at the foundation, are you satisfied with your life? Are you truly happy and joyful at the foundation of who you are? I assume, and I think I'm right to say, that this man, this court official, was dissatisfied fundamentally with his life despite all of the trappings. Now think, so often people don't realize how, not to be silly here, I'll say this, but sometimes people don't realize how miserable they actually are. Let me explain why. Very often they think through a kind of sense of delayed gratification that if they get the career, if they get the best-selling whatever, if they end up to this position, if they have this audience, this kind of listenership, this kind of whatever, if they get to the certain level that the hunger will go away and they will find that rest at the end of that road. And so, so often people feel like, okay, I might not be happy now, but I know I'm going to be happy in 10, 20 years when I get to that, that spot out there. And here's what happens, as you know. People will get to that moment in their career where they have all those things and they look around and they say, what? There's got to be something more. Okay, I did not plan to mention Tom Brady, but he just popped into my head. <laughs> Tom Brady is a perfect example of this. Some of you have seen this clip. I've mentioned it at least three times probably over the last few years. But there's a famous 60 Minutes interview. This is now old. I bet he could do the same interview all over again. With how, how many Super Bowls has he won now? Seven. My goodness. So, I think this is maybe after Super Bowl three or four he had won. So he was just small time. You know, at that time he was three or four Super Bowls, no big deal. He had won a few Super Bowls at this point, and they interviewed him. He, I guess he would have been early, mid-30s, something like that. And the interviewer said, you know, talk to me about that. You've got everything you could ever want. You know, you've got this and that and all the money and all the fame, and you've done things no one's ever done. And then he looks at the camera and he's like, there, there's got to be something more than this. There's got to be. And then the interviewer goes, do you know what that is? He said, I wish someone would tell me. I would love to know, like, what, what is it that's going to actually make me happy? Uh, and so, there, here's a man who's got everything you could ever want in terms of, just think about it. And he says, there's got to be, his actual words, there's got to be something more than this. His own words on 60 Minutes. You, you just want to scream into, like, with love into the, into the TV and say, humbly, I know what that is. I don't care how many football Super Bowl rings you're wearing on your hand. You can get one on every finger. It will not satisfy, and he will tell you that. And so, this man is traveling a long way because he is desperate. And I'll just tell you, if you have a friend or a loved one who is aware of this ache and this emptiness in their heart, they could be a prime candidate for the gospel of Jesus. Because we, with humility and love, say, I know the feast that your heart wants. It is not in something out there. It's in the Lord Jesus, and He actually is what you are designed for. Talking to the believers, I think that's most of us in this room, but it, those of us who are believers, don't you know what this is like to have those moments? Maybe they're not every day, maybe not every week, but those moments of just 
intense worship in, with the Lord where you just sit there and you think, Lord, I know that you are real and that my soul was designed for you. Only you can satisfy me the way that you do. Uh, I, I hope you understand that from experience, what that, is, what that is like. So this man is desperate and he is on a quest. What experience would he have had when he got to Jerusalem? We get nothing about it, but I can paint a bit of a picture using the passage. Again, he's a eunuch. In Deuteronomy, what's the verse? 23 verse 1 says eunuchs are not allowed into the assembly. Now, this is what I just have to assume happened. Based on the Deuteronomy law, when he gets to Jerusalem after weeks and perhaps months of travel, he goes there and he's trying to find the truth and he thinks maybe the God of Israel has the answer. And he's right. And when he gets to the temple, he's not allowed to go in and worship because eunuchs are not allowed in the assembly. So he's locked outside the temple. From what I understand, he's not even allowed into the court of the Gentiles given his condition. He has to stay outside of the temple. So he cannot properly worship in the way that he would want to. He's essentially locked out, and no doubt he would have felt deformed. He would have felt cast out. He would have felt ne neglected and rejected. All, whatever kind of thing you want to paint there, I feel like he would have felt this emptiness and this desperation. And then somehow, maybe in Jerusalem, he finds a way, maybe at a synagogue there, to purchase, to purchase a scroll of Isaiah. Maybe other books too, but he at least buys Isaiah, and that would have cost him a lot of money. But he is so desperate, he doesn't care how much it costs. He buys a scroll, a handwritten scroll of Isaiah, and he starts his journey back from Jerusalem, heading towards Egypt and the Nile, but first to Gaza. So he's traveling on the first 50 or so miles of his journey, heading through the hot desert, and what's he doing? He's reading his Bible. He's reading Isaiah, and he's just reading through. And, and maybe you've had this experience when you were becoming a Christian. When you're first reading the Bible, some things make real good sense to you, and some things you're just like, I have no idea what this is talking about. And so this man probably grasps some of what's he, what he's reading, but we know he does not grasp everything because he's about to say that in just a moment. So here he is. Can you picture the man? Do you kind of get a feel for what's going on here as he's traveling home? I don't think his, his, his desire for worship was satisfied because of all that had happened. He's confused. He does not yet understand the gospel. And he's reading Isaiah. Look, look with me here. Let me, let me start back at verse, uh, end of 27. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet. By the way, he was reading out loud, as was the, as was the custom. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? Pause there. I love this. The Spirit says, go over there. And what does Philip do? Does he walk? He runs. He runs. Uh, some people think there's a reference to Elijah, the other man running next to a chariot in the Old Testament. Maybe so. He's, he's a kind of a prophet like Elijah in this moment. He's, he's running. I love that. So when, when, now, I don't think the Spirit speaks to us audibly with special revelation today, but I will say this. We do have consciences, do we not? And our consciences are informed, I hope, by God's Word. And so God's Word illuminated by the Spirit and informing our conscience can prompt us to certain specific acts of obedience. Don't we know what this is like? You ever been there where, you know, you're sitting somewhere and the neighbor comes outside and you do, I mean, I'm so, 
I'm not good at this kind of stuff, but you, you just feel something inside of you say, this is a perfect moment. You, you should say something. You, you, you should go over and talk to that person. And I would just say that we need to, we need to listen to our conscience in these moments of life when, when you, know, you have a few extra minutes and there's a unique opportunity at work or at school or wherever, maybe with a family member, and you say, you, you, you know what I'm talking about? The voice that just says, you should say something. Start a conversation. See where this goes. Just say something. Just start the ball rolling. And so many times I've said no. I've been a coward and I've just turned away. Other times, yes. And has the Lord used those moments in our lives to, to, to create these moments with other people, whether we know them well or hardly at all, where we begin to speak things? And it's amazing how quickly a conversation can become dramatically Christ-focused with an unbeliever. And they can be telling you things you're not expecting. And suddenly, an opportunity has opened up right in front of us. So, Philip is obedient, and he runs and hears him reading Isaiah. So, he was definitely reading out loud, again, as was the custom. Now, I love this part. So, just picture, the Ethiopian man is in his chariot up a little bit, you know, a little higher off the ground. He's got his servants around him. He's got the oxen, perhaps, maybe horses, but probably oxen pulling this thing. And the oxen are probably not looking forward to the next thousand miles, let's be honest here, as they've got to pull him back. So he's sitting up there on his chariot. He's got Isaiah out. He's reading it out loud. And he looks over, and there's a man <laughs> running next to his chariot. It's a little bit strange. It's like you're driving, and someone walks up next to your car. You're like, okay. And he looks over, and the man looks up at him and says, uh, hey, do you understand what you're reading? He says, uh, how can I unless someone explains it to me? So look, we'll look again here, into verse 30. Philip runs up, hears him reading Isaiah. Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Can you imagine being in Philip's position? You come up next to the chariot. You hear it's Scripture. You could even tell it's Isaiah. Suddenly you realize it's what we today call Isaiah 53. Of all the passages in all of the Old Testament, can you find a better chapter in all of the Bible in the Old Testament to be about Christ and His sacrificial death for us? And this man has questions. I'll just tell you, when someone you know is reading the Bible of their own initiative, and they're asking you a lot of questions, this is a very good sign that the Spirit is at work. Most people, to be honest, could care less about reading the Bible. It's so boring. Why would you read that book? But when someone is suddenly intensely focused on God's Word, and they are reading it and rereading it, and they, are, and they have questions about it, and they're bringing you questions, this is a tremendous sign that the Holy Spirit is at work. And Philip says, you know, he asked him, do you know who this man is? Is it the prophet himself or someone else? And I can almost hear Philip say, it's funny you should ask. Let me tell you all about this individual. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. He grew up in Galilee. He was brutally killed even though he had done no wrong. They laid him in a borrowed tomb but because he had done no wrong, why was he crucified? For the sins of his people. God proved that by raising him from the dead, vindicating his character, and he appeared to his followers for 40 days. 
He's ascended into heaven. He is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. He is going to come again in a short time to judge the living and the dead. And here's the good news. You, sir, although you are from far away and know comparatively very little, you can have a full relationship with this living Son of God by simple repentance from sin and faith in His sacrifice. And you can have that right now. Look what happens next. Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, just pause there. That means a lot of explaining had happened in this chariot ride. He didn't just know about baptism, okay? So they're riding. They got plenty of time, all the time in the world, 1,200 miles. We can just, you know, he didn't stay that long. But, you know, we got time. This man is in no rush. Weeks are going to go by before he gets home. They're riding the chariot, and he's just pouring, no doubt, question after question after question. Let me just say here, we believe in the, the, the Reformed doctrine of, of Scripture alone, sola scriptura. We believe that the Bible is the only final authority in all matters of faith and practice. We believe that. We believe in the, the, uh, the sufficiency of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. This is our golden standard of all matters about uh, life and doctrine. But let me say this. The Bible, this very Bible teaches that we need teachers. God has given the church, Ephesians 4, pastors and teachers and evangelists and we're told in Hebrews 13 to consider leaders and their outcome of life and to imitate their faith. So when we look back in Christian history, we can look at the great Christian teachers that God has given the church, and we can learn so much from them. So I, I want to kind of balance out a thought here. On one extreme, there's a view that says, you know, I'm gonna, I, I have pastor or theologian X, and whatever they say, I believe no matter what. And they become equal in authority in our mind as the Bible. Can we all agree what? Not good, okay? We, we don't, I follow Paul. No, I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. We don't want to make one individual the golden standard of all our doctrine and theology because that would be to overly elevate any fallible person, okay? On the other extreme, the other extreme is to say, well, the Bible is the only final authority. This is the, this is the sufficient Word of God, so all I need is me and the Bible and the Holy Spirit. Now, do you see that's another extreme? God gave us teachers, especially in church history, so that we can better understand His Word. So I am not going to throw out the historic teachers of the faith. We, we, in so many ways, need them to better understand God's Word, but not one of them has final authority over God's Word. The, the problem with the Catholic Church traditionally and to this day is that they have taken church tradition, which is teachings of some church fathers, and they have said, as recently as the last Catholic catechism, the Pope said that the traditions of the church and Scripture are equal in authority for us. That is to over-elevate the teachers of the church, obviously, but we can also have a danger of undervaluing the teachers that God has given the church. Do you see the, I'm trying to thread this balance here? So the final authority is this word, and we better spend a whole lot of time in this word. But we should not neglect the teachers God has given the church. There are so many things we can learn and profit from the theologians of church history, even if we disagree with Calvin here, or Edwards here, or Whitfield there. You see, there, there are areas we may not agree, but there is so much that we can learn from past theologians in church history and even present today. Much more could be said there, 
But let me continue. Philip explains what Christian baptism is to the Ethiopian eunuch. And let me, I, I, don't, I don't really have the time to do this, so let me just say very quickly, uh, can you look with me at verse 37? You may notice it's not in your Bible. I, I don't have time to talk about this at length. Let me, can, I just, can I just give you a really quick thing here? I'm sorry. To, okay, just real quick. If you, some of you may have it in brackets. Some of you may not have it at all. You probably, if you're like, you're like, wait, why is, there, why is there no verse 37? Just real quick side note here. I think it's worth mentioning. Are you ready to follow me just for a technical moment? So, the verses in the New Testament were added in the 1550s, 1550s, by a French printer named Stephanus. I'm not making this up, okay? That's when it was added. The New Testament verses were added by Stephanus while he was traveling, and he printed his Greek New Testament, and it was very popular. People liked to be able to find verses quickly, and so everybody copied Stephanus' verse divisions. Stephanus' Greek New Testament in the 1550s was based on Erasmus' Greek New Testament from 1516, which was a fairly good New Testament. It was, it, you know, Luther used it, a lot of people used it in the Reformation. It's a great New Testament, but it wasn't an absolutely flawless Greek New Testament because it was based on only about six Greek manuscripts from about the year 1000. Since then, have we discovered a lot more Greek New Testament manuscripts? Yeah, thousands more. We have over 5,000 now. And do we have manuscripts that go back earlier than the ones Erasmus was using? Yes, which means we've realized certain statements in the New Testament were added later by copyists because they are not in the earliest copies of Acts. Do you follow that? So, Acts 8.37 is not in the earliest, and you can go look at the list, the earliest and best copies of of Acts that we have do not have Acts 8.37. I do not think I mean, I think the argument is overwhelmingly powerful, that it is not original. I think it was added probably in a margin because, here's why, to get back to the story, some of the copyists probably thought it was awkward that this man does not make a profession of faith in the text. He just jumps right to baptism. So someone wanted to say, well, he did make a profession. So someone probably added in a margin, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And Philip said, okay, if you believe with all your heart, you can be baptized. And that was probably added as as a marginal reading that found its way into later manuscripts. Okay, I'm done. i got to move on. Okay, get back to the text. I'm just telling you, almost certainly not original, but don't worry. The modern translations are not taking verses out of the Bible. You get, you get how that works. Okay, so here's what he does. He wants to be baptized. Verse 38, he commanded the chariot to stop, this is the Ethiopian, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, here's what we see here. This man has believed in Jesus. He would not know about baptism if he didn't know about the gospel. And he has put his faith in Jesus right there on the spot. And he says, there's enough water here to be baptized. Just to take a quick Baptist comment here. If all he needed was enough water to be sprinkled, no doubt he had water with him since he was traveling through the desert. He could have done sprinkling with his his water he was carrying, but he needed to be immersed, I'm convinced. And so he went down into the water because they needed enough water to be covered, representing the burial with Christ and a resurrection to new life with Christ, which is what baptism pictures. So I am convinced Philip took him down into a a little area of water in that wilderness and, and, and immersed him and brought him up out of the water. And the eunuch went on his way rejoicing and Philip left him. Now listen, there is only church tradition about this man after this story. So, I don't know how reliable it is, but there is church tradition from centuries later that says he started a church down from where he was from, and the gospel went out in that region from his very life. But we don't know fully what all happened. Here's the point. 
Did this man find the worship that he was looking for? The joy that he so desperately did not have and so desperately wanted, at the end of the story, he has found the one he was made for, and now he goes on his way full of the joy that he has apparently lacked for many years. The money did not give the joy. The status did not give the joy. The job did not give the joy. The travel to Jerusalem, even that, did not give the joy. It was meeting the resurrected Jesus who paid for his sins and putting his faith in him that gave him the joy and the worship and the satisfaction that his soul longed for, and he came to know the Lord. Right next to that passage he was reading in Isaiah 53 was Isaiah 56, which says these words, which no doubt the eunuch would have read. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Heavenly Father, no doubt as the eunuch was reading those very words in Isaiah 56, he would have seen the hope for himself to be brought near. Even if he was not allowed into the Jerusalem temple, he was going to be given a name in your house better than sons and daughters. And he went on his way rejoicing from the good news that He had found in Jesus. God, I pray again that You would allow us to find great joy in this good news of being made right with a holy God, which this communion represents, and help us to live lives of such joy that others would see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. So God, please be with us this week. Use us this week in a special way for your glory and for your kingdom. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.